Ever wanted to push papers? Let's figure out how to start clacking the typewriter and writing unreadable fonts. Right here, at the Renactor's Corner. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner Podcast. This is Chris here again with Lassa. How are you doing today, Lassa? Uh, yeah, fine. What about you? I'm doing great. Uh, we are recording this the day before Thanksgiving in the United States, and I am looking forward to having dinner with my family. And I'm also really excited about our episode today because we're going to be talking about something that is really uh, special for me. This is a concept that people have asked me in the past to do a podcast episode about, and we're going to talk about the like clerk and paperwork impression in World War II reenacting, which is um, something that I specialize in. Yeah, you have um, done a lot of that. And yeah, I think many people will be excited to hear about it. Yeah, it's something I really have always wanted to talk about in the podcast, but I didn't want to talk about it early on because I wanted to deal with some more general subjects, like for the early episodes of the podcast. And this one is, um, hopefully it will be of interest to everybody, but I know that some of what I'm going to be talking about is going to be kind of technical and probably only of interest to, you know, a smaller number of people. But I, I'll try to keep it as general as I can, so it'll be hopefully uh, interesting for everybody. Yeah. Um, so, what is the first step to talking about the clerk impression? Well, let's just jump in and say, okay, why is paperwork important to a World War II reenactment impression, in particular, a World War II German reenactment impression? And in, it's my opinion that paperwork is really important for a World War II German reenactment impression because it's like a cultural thing for Germany in general, even today. Germany is a country with a lot of bureaucracy. It's got a lot of what we would say in America, it's got a lot of red tape. There's um, a lot of paperwork, a lot of forms. From an American perspective, it's, it's different. Like if I move, for instance, today to a different community in the United States, I don't actually have to notify any authorities. I might have to tell the um, registry of motor vehicles that I have moved um, or my insurance company, right? My insurance rates might change if I move. But like in Germany, you have to um, actually register with the local police that you have moved to the, to the community. And that's just one example um, in where Germany is kind of like a, a country, a culture that has sort of, a, I don't know, it's tuned towards bureaucracy. They hold their officials in very high regard. It's been now... Um, like 20 years since I've spent a lot of time in Germany, but um, I know at least a while ago, they had laws on the books where you couldn't like publicly insult somebody who was an official, right? A Beamte. These people, these officials um, who usually have like administrative roles are um, or were sort of a protected and kind of important class in Germany. And um, more so even uh, during the Third Reich than today. Obviously, like we have our kind of cartoonish 
view Americans will probably be familiar with of the German guard um, in a terrible accent in a movie saying, let me see your papers. Um, That's not like a stereotype that came out of nowhere. They were uh, very attuned to forms and uh, paperwork and authorizations and written authorizations. Um, And I think if we're going to be portraying Germans in World War II, we should have some of that because that was an important part of their everyday life. Anyone who's seen a movie like um, Schindler's List, you know, has seen these scenes where um, people are given work permits or other paperwork that in some cases are a matter of life and death. And that's how it really was. Um, You know, you had to have your authorizations or, you know, it could be a it could be a problem for you if you were involved in the extremely regimented totalitarian society of the Third Reich in Germany. Um, And so, yeah, I think, to me, having the proper paperwork for your World War II impression, if you're portraying a German, that's, to me, as important or maybe even more important as stuff that gets sometimes more attention, like having the right hat or the right insignia on your tunic. You know, to me, the paperwork really is like a crucial part of this whole thing. The German army had a lot of paperwork, and I think it's, um, like the first time I saw you at Gap, uh, you had the clerk impression um, for the Nenaton Gap, a, an event that is no longer. And I was just amazed that you had so many people with you, and I really got a sense that I was in a military unit um, eight years ago with all the typewriters uh, clacking away. I'm glad that you uh, liked that. That was something that I built up over time. When I first started doing that, it was it was just me. When I first got started in World War II reenacting, I was really excited about buying all my kit and getting all of the items that I needed, the props that I needed to reenact with, and to have everything that a soldier would have had. And one of the things that interested me the most about my kit was the Zoldbuch, which is the personal identity document that every German soldier carried in World War II. So I guess kind of circling back a little bit to how different the German perspective of paperwork was than the Allied perspective, uh, from my understanding, the identification carried by an American soldier in World War II was just a card with his name on it, um, whereas like the German identity document is not just a card. It is a little book. It's got like 30-something pages in there, and it contains tons and tons of information about what unit you're in, other units that you've been in, all the awards that you were issued, everything that you've been issued, all of the uniforms and equipment. It has your occupation, personal details about you, your home address, who your next of kin is, a record of the times that you've been on leave, a record of the times you've been to the doctor, a record of the time you've been to the dentist, all of this stuff. It was carried around by them all the time, your immunization records. Um, And so as a new reenactor, I was looking at this book and I was just totally enthralled by it. And I was like, um, I don't know, just... It seemed, it seemed important to me because so much of the information that was in there was going to be kind of important information for the fake World War II alter ego that I was creating, the persona that I was working on. Like I say, it has your home address in there and your occupation and whether you're married or single. And I wanted mine to really have information that I related to and connected with. So like I chose 
an, an address in a town where I would live that was a place that I had been and was a place that I knew the character of this place, not just the town, but the neighborhood, you know, so that I could, I guess, say, and I knew something about, about what was going on in that neighborhood during World War II, you know, so if somebody had looked in there and said, oh, you're from such and such a street in such and such a town, I know that place, I could actually talk about it and provide information about it that was real, you know, that's just one example of the information that is in there that I thought was really cool, and so, um, the book that I had was filled out by um, this person, Richard, who portrayed the Hultfeld Vabel in the unit that I was in. And I told him, I said, I want to learn how to do this. I want to learn how to fill this out. I want to learn everything about what goes in this book, and I want to be able to put the information in this book that's supposed to go in there. Um, and he was super supportive and super helpful and, you know, kind of facilitated what eventually became like my whole paperwork office empire thing that I have. Um, so I, in many ways I have him to thank for that. But um, look, there was, it has been a long journey now. It has been um, almost 20 years since the first time that I put pen to paper to fill out a World War II German document. And I've learned a lot in the process. I've made mistakes, made a lot, a lot of mistakes. Um, and I found some things that worked with the clerk impression some things that didn't work and um so hopefully i can share some of that i think it sounds perfect um i've dabbled into like uh, not a clerk impression but uh filling out um like soul books and other paperwork and it it is really challenging it is very confusing it seems that a lot of the um the available information uh pages in the soul book weren't even like fully filled out and it's difficult to know what to write where and to find the correct information and all of that stuff yeah that can be a real challenge um you know the only really the people uh, contact me pretty often and they say i had a i got a reproduction document maybe it's a zoldbuch or maybe it's some other kind of document like a travel document or a leave document or um like a marksmanship test certification or something or some other kind of civilian or military document and they'll say are you aware of any instructions anywhere about how to fill out this specific document and the answer is almost always no because look that just doesn't really exist it, unfortunately for most of these things there's not some easily accessible how-to guide for how to do it so it requires a, a lot of research on your own and the thing to do here is to uh, find, well, I guess the first thing to do is if you don't speak German, if you're not familiar with the German language and particularly like the bureaucratic terms on the forms and how everything is laid out, you've got to take the time to sit down and look at every word that is printed on a, on a document and figure out what it says. What is it asking for? And that pays major dividends because a lot of this information is going to be the same from one document to the next. Your name, your unit, your date of birth, stuff like that. You need to know, okay, this says, you know, this, that means I'm going to enter my name. This says this, that means I'm going to enter my unit and so on and so forth. But beyond that, you need to be looking at original documents. And like you mentioned, um, sometimes the way that these documents were filled out in reality wasn't necessarily the same as the way that 
they were intended to be filled out by the people who designed the forms, right? Like you mentioned, like a, a sold book page. You know, it's common for some pages to be blank. It's common for some pages to have information on there that's different from what that page was really intended for. Um, and so in order to get a grip on that, you need to do some research and look at original documents. The, the great part about all of this is that there are basically unlimited original documents available as scans on the internet, on collector pages, collector forums, and collector websites, and, and various types of archive websites, and even for sale on eBay and stuff. There's tons and tons and tons of World War II German paperwork that has survived, that has basically been digitized, and is available for free for you to study. So you don't have to worry about necessarily spending the money to buy original documents and make an archive of real collectible stuff that might be expensive. You can have a collection of scans and you can get pretty much all the information that you need from a collection of scans. Yeah, because you're really looking at um, what was written where and how it was written and what the information is, not necessarily like the paper quality. Right, I mean, especially... Um, Look, you can have an impression of this stuff without actually manufacturing any of your own forms. Like, very few people who do this impression actually make a Zoldbuch. They use blank books that are made for reenactors that are available. So you're, you're focused more on, like, you know, putting the stuff on the paper than making the paper item itself for the most part. And that, to me, is actually... The most important part of this whole thing, people ask me all the time, where can I get the best uh, blank reproduction sold book? And the reality is, is that you can get a fantastic reproduction. But if the person filling it out doesn't do a good job, it's not going to look convincing and it's not going to be right. Whereas you can get a pretty lousy uh, reproduction sold book to a point, right? I mean, some of them, there are, there are some just terrible uh, joke tier copies out there, but if you just get a you know commonly available reproduction document, um, even if the paper isn't exactly the same as paper from World War II, if the person who is filling it out has skill, um, it can look super realistic. You know, it can look super convincing because the handwriting, the stamps, the ink, everything is right. And um, I tell you, it's really gratifying. It has. I have had an opportunity a few times to show documents that I filled out to elderly German people. And I remember uh, one woman looking at it and saying, uh, you didn't make this. No one can write like this anymore. You didn't write this. You know, and it's like, I did. I did write it. Um, but she didn't believe it. And I, that was, to me, uh, a, a tremendous compliment. But look, it's not like I was born with some kind of skill to do this. Um, I learned how to do it by practice, and absolutely anybody can do it. It just takes practice. Even if you have lousy handwriting, if you've never touched a fountain pen, you don't speak any German, you can do this. That's the, that's the um, position that I was in when I started doing this stuff, but through learning about it and through practice, I was able to kind of refine my impression. It's like any reenactment impression in that way. You know, you get better at it over time if you put in the time, if you practice and, you know, put in research and effort and learn about it. Yeah, I agree with you that, um, yeah, I mean, the paper quality, like, you can strive to get perfect paper quality and that, like, really... Uh, which is they really sets it apart, but you can get a long way with just some uh, hobby paper, basically. 
you can go, you can get a long way with regular printer paper. It's not, you know, it, it may be depending on what you're doing. Um, you know, the, the, so like a clerk impression, um, a clerk impression is kind of a generic term that is sort of an umbrella term that covers all different kinds of roles. I mean, like if we think about, okay, um, like a company, an infantry company, which is what a lot of reenactment groups kind of portray. There is what is called a Schreibstube, which is sort of the company office where all of the correspondence and record keeping is supposed to take place. The Schreibstube was uh, under the command of the Hauptfeldwebel, who was the senior NCO in a company. And uh, beneath the Hauptfeldwebel, there were like one, uh, there were between two and three clerks. And so the Hauptfeldwebel and the clerks in the company Schreibstube, they were responsible for, like I say, keeping records and doing correspondence and stuff. Each man had his own responsibilities and roles, and they kept various kinds of records. But as you go up to larger unit types, like a, um, you know, a regiment or a bataillon, or a division, then there are headquarters there. And then it's not just a matter of having a Schreibstube. You know, you would have like buildings in some cases full of people, um, you know, transcribing messages, writing correspondence, orders to the regiment, you know, from the regiment, so on and so forth, maintaining the war diary, maintaining records of, um, you know, on any given day, people who were transferred in and out of the unit, maintaining the roster. I mean, it's this massive amount of record keeping. It was so important to them. It was like um, they were meticulous about it. And they had tons and tons of people who did this, ranging from the lowest enlisted rank people who might be helping out in a barracks, just, you know, recording, making sure that everyone was in the bed that they were supposed to be in that night, up to high-ranking officers in administrative roles who were maybe in supply, right, or um, had to create requisitions and um, were, or in like signals units, the people who were responsible for monitoring teletype messages and maintaining all of these records. And so it's this, I say clerk impression, like it's a finite thing, but really it's just an almost, almost anybody in the Wehrmacht could have found themselves behind a writing desk at some point. And there were, you know, without exaggeration, many thousands of people whose job in the Wehrmacht put them behind a writing desk. So, um, you know, there's so many different things that you can do with this impression, and there's so many different ways that um, that this impression can be used at reenactment events. You know, I, I think it's like a really versatile thing. Yeah, I, um, I looked at the, like, yeah, army structure, like a, a structure of an, of, an, uh, of an army, and I saw that they had, like, one battalion of clerks, basically. Sure. And within that, you know, people had their own specific roles. You know, one guy w would maybe be responsible for just, um, 
you know, writing up orders to be sent to a certain department. Another person's job would be maybe to just make copies of that paperwork all day for distribution to other officers. And a third person might have to make copies of everything for the archives of that unit or so on and so forth. You know, so it's, um, I mean, typewriters, which were used by the clerks, were super important. Um, if you look at divisional records, you can see that they... Um, are sending out messages to the subordinate units. We need a list of all the typewriters that you have. We need to know the serial number and exactly what kind of typewriter that you have, because this was like a war strategic asset. You know, um, their operations became very, very difficult when they didn't have the ability to, um, you know, do what they needed to do. Even just to maintain the lists of the regulations that they had to follow was a job for somebody. So, um, you know, I think I might have said on this show before, and I, I have to find my source for this because I read this at some point and I need to verify this, but um, definitely read at one point that for every German soldier at the front, there were four in the rear. And that might be something of an exaggeration, um, but but perhaps not, you know, and, and if it, even if it is an exaggeration, the reality is there were just tr a tremendous amount of administrative staff type personnel enlisted men, NCOs, and officers, and they, they, their presence was important in World War II. It was, um, you know, not necessarily their presence on the battlefield, right, in the foremost lines. Um, it's not like somebody was there typing on a typewriter while, while the guy next to him was firing a machine gun <laughs> at an enemy assault, right? Um, and th this actually is like a mistake that I kind of have made because I have... Um, when I started doing this stuff, I did have a lot of kind of bad ideas. Like when I started reenacting, I had a lot of bad ideas. And some of those bad ideas um, extended to this clerk impression. At one time, I had some idea that I was going to be like a mailman, like a military, like mailman guy, like the guy in the squad who like delivered the mail. And there is no such thing as that. That's totally ridiculous. Um, you know, that was something that I thought like how it should be, not how it really was. In the reality of combat, um, there were guys whose primary job was to be a clerk, but when the when the shells came in, you grabbed your rifle and you manned your position in the trench or whatever, just like everybody else. Uh, you know, the, the lots of these guys who had administrative roles wound up in close combat. Maybe they weren't supposed to be, but because the enemy broke through or just later in the war when they just needed absolutely everybody they could. So um, it's not like a clerk impression and a combatant impression are mutually exclusive. You can be a guy who is focused on, you know, administrative stuff, but you also can participate in tacticals as a rifleman because generally speaking, these uh, these clerks in an infantry unit, they had infantry weapons and they knew how to do infantry stuff. So, yeah, especially the um, stripes tube on the company level. Absolutely, yeah. They, and I have a few identity documents for these guys where it's, um, you know, it says in the Verpass, for example, that their, uh, maybe their primary job is clerk and their secondary job is rifleman, you know, uh, depending on what was needed at the time. Um, yeah, exactly. But I, I really like to do rear area scenarios at reenactments. To me, some of the most immersive experiences are when you're portraying something in a rear area because it kind of, um, I don't know, it gives you 
sort of more latitude, more flexibility and freedom to come up with different things. When you are in the foremost line, right, when the enemy is within hand grenade range, um, you you have to practice sound and light discipline and it requires behavior in a very kind of narrow frame or in real life you would have died or you know from a reenacting perspective you're not doing it correctly whereas in a rear area situation and by rear area i i, I could be talking about a cafe in occupied uh france or i could be talking about you know the the tross, which was a few kilometers behind the foremost lines, um, you know, there's a little bit more that you can portray there. And uh, I think with that flexibility to portray something a little bit more can be a little bit more depth and, and richness sometimes. And I know some people would disagree with me, but I think that it can be really, really, really hard to portray uh, combat realistically. You know, we're talking about how difficult it can be to fill out reproduction paperwork. But to me, that's actually easy compared to realistically behaving like you're a soldier fighting for his life on the front line. Well, it depends entirely on the event, doesn't it? I mean, there's yes. been very few events I've been to where it would be suitable, but those events where it would be suitable, it would be absolutely grand to have it. As, for example, the uh, Belgium event I've been talking probably way too much about. Uh, we did have a an idea of having a squad of guys who manned a field kitchen and also took care of everybody's equipment. Like, they're basically the the kitchen and the truss of the, of the event. And that's probably a combination that works well for, like, a week's time. And it would be awesome if we had like five people who could do that. Sounds awesome. I'm I'm glad that you brought that up, that it's not applicable to every event, because that's another mistake that I made, where at one point I just thought, you know what, I love doing this so much that at every event that I do, I'm going to be bringing a desk and a typewriter, and I'm going to be doing um, some kind of paperwork stuff. And in my mind, that all was going to work out just fine. I had it all figured out, so... Like if we were doing a, a a tactical event, you know, I would kind of be at the in the back with the, um, the the tent and stuff with the camp, and I would work on typing up orders that would be distributed to the field, or work on maintaining the records of the guys. You know, I might collect their Zoldbucher before they took the field, and then go through them and make sure that everything was up to date. And that all sounds good right that all sounds like that's going to work but the reality when you show up at an event with the other 14 guys from your group who made it to that event and the time comes to form up and march out and they all go off to do something and then you sit down at your table in the camp and start looking at their paperwork it's like maybe the first time that you do that that's cool but if that becomes like you're doing that three, four times a year, um, look, it's not really realistic, right? And it's also not necessarily super fun, um, you know. When you're ex and then everyone comes back and they're they're excited, you know. Maybe they come back and they had a terrible time, and then you get to feel smug and be like, "Oh, I did my zony thing by myself." But more more likely, they're going to come back and they are going to have stories about the fun thing that you did and then that they did, right? And then you can say, "Well, I." Uh, you know, I definitely 
wrote a bunch of stuff. You know, it's some, some, it just, it, it, look, like you said, it's not applicable to every event, to every kind of event. But when it is applicable, which is a good amount of events, you know, there's, depending on the type of events that a person does, there are certain types of events that are uh, really well suited for it. One, one thing I like to do is I like to do this stuff at public displays because um, I think it's a really good way to engage the public. And it's something that is going to be kind of a little bit different. Not everybody's doing it. With the, the public come to a public display, they want to talk to reenactors and see reenactor camps. And they'll see, you know, people portraying a rifleman. And, um, you know, there might be many such people. And there's only so many times that you can ask somebody what kind of gun is that before they want to move on and see something different. And if you're sitting at a desk with a bunch of rubber stamps typing away on a typewriter, just the sound of that typewriter will like draw people in and it's something that they can relate to and they'll come over and they'll say, oh, you know, what are you doing? And then you can kind of explain, okay, this is the headquarters. Um, we're processing these soldiers. We're working on this project and, um, you can kind of explain to them the, the cultural differences and aspects of um, the Third Reich bureaucratic culture. And so it can kind of be like a learning vehicle, something to talk about. And it's also it's also fun in a way um, because, look, you can take this time at public display events and you're sitting there typing something up that's and, and you're talking to the public and it's a cool display that people like to see. And at the same time, you're actually manufacturing useful paper props that you or the people in your group can stuff in the back of this old book or can have in their wallet or whatever. And so it's it, uh, it, it, it can be like a crowd pleaser and also make the people in your unit happy. And it's also fun. So it's like a win-win-win situation, I think, for a public display type event. Yeah, uh, I think... Public events uh, are probably the best suited for rear area um, uh, impressions like this. But what about rear area only private events? We've done a few events like that, and I find them to be really, um, really rewarding, really realistic. Um, if it is a rear area private event, you can kind of open up you you can kind of plan what the event is um based on who wants to go and you can kind of make it really inclusive in that way you can have civilians or members of various military branches um like if you're portraying d-day right um if you're portraying a landing beach on d-day there's only a few units that you can really choose from on the german side and like you know if you pick a particular beach there's only a few roles that you can pick on the allied side as well and that's it and there you can't really have women on the beach at d-day that's not how it was and there's certain other types of roles that just aren't going to be a, a match but if you decide okay we're going to do a private um, immersive rear area scenario, then you can absolutely write it so that you can have whatever kind of personnel as far as reenactors that are available to do it. And, and it can be extremely realistic. It takes some creativity. It takes some, uh, maybe some research, but that's true with any kind of event that you need to have some imagination to come up with an idea for something that you guys can do together. Um, yeah, I think, like I say, I've done a few, and I think that they're they're really memorable. Um, I'd like to do more of them, but it's just a matter of finding the time to do it and you know making it happen with my schedule. Yeah, that's always the problem with the hobby. 
Right. It's like one thing to have grandiose ideas and then another thing to actually do it. You know, everybody wants to talk about reenacting until it's time to do reenacting stuff. And then it's like, oh, I I need to mow the lawn or like it's my wife's birthday that month or you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this affects me as you know, it affects everybody. It's just it's a reality of of the reenactment hobby. But like I say, I've been able to make it work a few times and when you're doing a rear area scenario you can have different kinds of uh settings right like we did one at a uh at an old factory where um that's kind of near where i work and this was private property that we had permission to use and the factory building was really cool because it it's an old building, probably from the 19th century. It looks totally correct for World War II inside with, you know, tiny differences like the the shape of the outlets on the plug and the wall, right? Like stuff like that. But um, but yeah, it was really, really kind of a zony place. But of course, you can't shoot a rifle in there. This is a, there's businesses adjacent to that. Like you can't have some kind of battle in this factory. But what you could do is... Um, set up a rear area thing with a, an office and have soldiers that are there to get their leave papers and um, people are, are quartered there or whatever. You know, there's a lot that you can do with a zony interior space like that. And if you don't have to have a place where you can shoot blanks and make a big loud noise that's going to attract attention, you know, there's, uh, it opens up other areas, you know, other places that you can do this kind of stuff. Mm, totally. Uh, I've been talking about the coastal fort we're uh, trying to occupy. And we've been thinking of setting up like a clerk's office uh, area somewhere there. And that would be, uh, I think that would be pretty cool. Because that's a, that's like a place where it really suits the clerk impression. I know I've mentioned on here before that we used to do some, uh, we used to do some events at a coastal fort here in Massachusetts and I would always set up my office, you know, and work together with another clerk and we would keep and maintain all kinds of records and the public thought that it was really cool. And I mean, if, if you have a clerk impression, you are very useful to a reenactment group because everybody in this hobby in theory should have the correct personal identification paperwork. And as their impression changes over time, that paperwork needs to be updated and sometimes it really needs to be replaced. For example, you know, I started in this hobby almost 20 years ago and I think that the first um, sold book that I had listed my birth year as being 1923 or something, right? And now I'm 41 years old. So, you know, now my, uh, my birth date is back in the 1800s, right? So I've had to have some different identity documents over time that reflected these changes as I've gotten older and I'm in, I'm in a different unit and I've changed my backstory and stuff. When I first realized I couldn't be born in 1923 anymore, I realized I'm getting old. Oh yeah, it's brutal, man. I mean, uh, I could almost do like a whole one hour monologue just on like the weirdness of like getting older in real life and then the mental feeling of also realizing that your fake world war ii character now has to like move further back in time right like you know when i first started reenacting i was 21 years old and i was portraying somebody who had been in the hitler jugend and i had a whole 
you know, story about that and everything. And now it's like, okay, I now need to figure out what my alter ego character did in World War I because I'm now so old that I would have been old enough that that would have affected my life. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's definitely it's definitely weird um, how your your fake character changes as you change. But there's always a demand for this paperwork stuff, always, always. And so if you can help people with that, if you can update their paperwork or issue them new paperwork as needed, or if there's a scenario that, you know, is happening at an event where it would be appropriate for somebody to be um, handing out some kind of document, whether, like I say, it's soldiers going on leave or whatever it is, right, any of a million things, or even just to have somebody who can type up or even just write up orders that messengers can deliver to different parts of a battlefield from like a rear area type command station. There's, this is a very useful impression and it makes you very useful if you are competent in it and you know how to do it. And to me, that's part of the, um, part of the appeal of this impression. I have people reaching out to me, inviting me to events because they need a headquarters type setup or they want, they want to have a headquarters. They want to have an office for the realism that that brings. And they know that I do it. So they, you know, they reach out for, out to me and I, I get invited to a lot of events from, from this. Um, so it's, it's definitely an asset that has like really worked out for me over time. What important stuff can a clerk impression bring to the unit? I mean, away from events, a clerk impression or a guy who knows clerk stuff can produce documents and stuff. But what useful Absolutely. stuff can the person do at events, like actually useful stuff? It's really only limited by like your imagination. Um, so the most useful thing that I ever did um, was at that Fort Indian Town Gap event that doesn't happen anymore that you went to. And what, how all, that all started was um, they had a, a, a combat aspect of that event with a battle, and they also had a rear area aspect of the event where they had kind of a functional German barracks area with a bunch of different features, including like a cafe where you could go for period-type um, recreation in in the evening hours it was really cool um and that had been going on for a few years and they started to have because this event was very big it attracted well over a thousand reenactors occasionally they'd be in an un, on kind of an uncomfortable situation where they would have to kick a guy out of the cafe because he was too drunk he was being a jerk or whatever it was uh or he just didn't he you know he didn't have the right uniform on or whatever right um and so they were thinking, okay, how can we, how can we kind of control who gets into this thing and who doesn't? And what they came up with was a system where you had to get a pass, basically a, um, like a, it was kind of a leave pass. It was an original form that would be filled out for you. And you had to show this pass in order to be admitted into the cafe. And also when you were issued the pass, um, there was a record that was kept of the number on your pass. So that was something that could be controlled to make sure that the, that the name and number were correct or whatever. It was um, many different levels of, of control became possible with this thing. And so they came up with a system where there was a, a rear area headquarters. And if you wanted to get a pass to go on leave, to go to this cafe, you had to report in your reporting uniform, the Melda Anzug, 
and you had to have your Zoldbuch and you had to uh, present your Zoldbuch to a clerk and he would then uh, make sure that everything was correct and he would issue you a pass. And, you know, this had, there were a lot of reasons why this was really good. Like just making sure that people had their Zoldbuch, that alone made the event more realistic and created um, more opportunities for people who wanted to do rear area type stuff. Also, um, like forcing people to show up in the Meldeanzug, just te basically tested to make sure that you could, you know, kind of follow basic, simple directions. So um, anybody who showed up at that event who was so subnormal that they couldn't even follow basic directions or they weren't going to bother getting a Zoldbuch because they were just there to drink and didn't really care about the history aspect of this, these people automatically weren't going to be able to get into the cafe. So that right there was like a... Um, a benefit and then beyond that if the, something un, unfortunate happened and you did have to kick somebody out you could demand that they hand over their pass and then they couldn't get back in uh, and they would go on a sort of a blacklist so um, I, the first year that they did this I remember I was I wanted to go I, I wasn't doing the clerk impression I was at the event I wanted to go to the cafe I went in there and I stood in line and I showed them my pass and it felt so real. It was like the most real feeling thing I did the whole weekend because it was just like that aspect of like the military bureaucracy, something about it, just to go into this building and have to present myself to a stranger who then maybe more or less rudely, you know, looked over my stuff and hammered out a document for me. And then I get this cool document that I get to keep kind of as a souvenir. It was a realistic looking document. Um, but the line that I had to stand in was long because there was just like one guy who was doing it and the system that he had, I mean, it was as efficient as it could be with one person doing it, but it was, you know, he was kind of overwhelmed and I, I was so taken with the whole thing that I approached the people in charge of it and I said, uh, you know, I could help out next year if you guys do this again, I would like to be, I would like to help out. I could do a shift at the desk or whatever. And uh, they were like, okay, sure. So I showed up the next year and as it happened, the people who had done it the first year, look, they had done a great job that first year, but they clearly it had been a lot of work and they were definitely happy to have somebody else do like most of the work this year. So instead of just helping out, I wound up doing maybe most of it. And I thought, all right, well, this was fun, but this was like t way too much work. I need to get more people on board. And I, I reached out to some other people, people in my unit and people that I knew were into kind of paperwork, desk, office stuff. And I grew it a little bit every year. And then you were there the last year um, where we had a pretty big staff. You know, there was um, the various uh, clerks. Plus, we had the female Nachrichtenhelferin in there doing it. Um, and, and people in, you know, specific roles where, you know, look, we had, I don't know, five typewriters going at one time, people clacking away, people doing real work. And that, that was one of the best events I ever did. You know, it really felt so real. And uh, it definitely was very rewarding, too. It was rewarding because it's like real work. Um, you're, when you're doing something like that, you're not pretending to work. You're actually doing something. And I don't know, it's just... Um, to me, honestly, that's like as real as it gets, you know, an endless line of mostly strangers, soldiers that I don't know from a variety of different units 
having to demand their paperwork or um, having them come to me for help in filling out the sold book. Because that's the other thing. We mandated that people have a sold book to get the pass for the cafe. But um, they it, it wouldn't have been fair to, to tell people that they have to have a sold book and then not offer them some way to have that. So it's like, okay, the bad news is you have to have this document. The good news is if you get a blank document, we'll fill it out for you for free. We'll write everything that you need in it, um, you know, right at the event. So that was a service that we offered, and it was definitely um, it was definitely fun. It was definitely a lot of work, um, and it was it was really rewarding, and it felt really, really reali- realistic. So that's, that's just like one example of the, probably the best example that I can give of a thing that a clerk impression can become – at an event that adds to to the event, adds to the scenario. I can't tell you how many people told me every year after the event, wow, it was so cool going into your headquarters. It felt so real. You know, it was a real highlight. I made all the guys in my unit go and do it. You know, people really appreciated it. And still to this day, I, I get compliments about it. So, um, you know, we've and we've revisited that role in some different ways at some different events since then as well. Um, and I'm always I'm always looking for more events where I can do that kind of stuff because I do think it just it is like I look it's, I just think it's so fun and I think it it adds to the event basically for everybody. Your enthusiasm is inspiring. I said <laughs> as monotone as I could. Uh, now uh, you um, <laughs> you say that you uh, that your team could fill out the soul books for free uh, because this is usually a service you charge for, right? Well, yeah, this is like the dark side of the clerk impression is, uh, um, or there's probably more demand for the services than there are people who can really do it. And um, again, this this is kind of why having this ability to fill out this paperwork is so important and so helpful and useful for a unit because if you can go to somebody in your unit and say, hey, I need a sold book filled out, he might say, well, okay, at the next public display event or the next immersion event or whatever it's going to be, I'm going to have my, my office set up and then I'll be able to do it for you then. Or he might even be able to do it for you at home. But if you don't have somebody that can do it for you, then you need to find someone that will, will do it for money. And um, I have offered this service at various times in the past and I still do it on like a very limited way but man it is time consuming to fill out a sold book and make it look really real and when i'm wearing my uniform at the event and everything around me is world war ii and i'm doing my world war ii job there's like nothing that's more fun that for me than that than to do that job but when i am at home in my modern home and like you know there's like cool stuff i could look at on my phone and my facebook notifications are going off like I got to be in a certain mindset to really like dial in and focus on filling out this paperwork. And it's just, it's hard to find the time and no one would want to pay me to work if I was charging by the hour to do this work, I'll tell you. So, um, I have like a long, long wait list and I'm still swamped. I'm still working on books for people who, uh, paid me to do it a long time ago. So, um, yeah, that's it. Look, you can make money doing this. Believe me, people ask me all the time. Can you fill out my soul book? How much does it cost? And there's a lot of people that want that. And if you can, if you can get good at it, which anybody can, absolutely anybody can, then you can 100% offer this as a service to reenactors and get money. But um, just be warned, like, 
you know, I don't know, it's fun for me to do it for the guys in my group, but the reality is that a lot of some of the guys in my group don't have an up-to-date book or maybe don't have a correct book for their impression at all because I've just been dragging my feet or in like, you know, speaking candidly here, like my own book sucks, you know, because I, I, I spent, I don't know, I never have time to work on it. Your books don't suck. My soul book sucks. It sucks. It's got the. It's got all kinds of. It's. It's not right. It's like not up to date. <laughs> Does it have to be up to date to be good though? I'm actually being stricken with like crippling anxiety right now because I am actually looking, uh, as I sit here at my writing desk and the like heap of work on there that needs to be done, and it's like giving me the creeps. It's like five feet away from me. It's like literally there is a there is a half filled out soul book. I'm touching it right now, and it's like I should have filled this out three years ago or something. It's it's crazy to think about. Um, well, I got one yeah, soul book uh, laying right here that I should have filled out, but it's just like less than a year. So, man, yeah, you can really get into a weird hole with that, um, with telling people that you'll fill out their stuff, um, and it becomes really dangerous uh, taking money for it. I've seen this happen with many, many different kinds of crafts people in this hobby, where they do a few things, and it could be almost anything. It could be manufacturing a uniform or manufacturing a piece of gear. And then um, there, there are some happy customers and word gets out, this is the guy to go to for this thing. And then all of a sudden, the wait time goes from two weeks to two months to two years. And then the person suddenly disappears and takes a bunch of people's money with them when they go. I've seen this happen a bunch of times. So I'm not, you know, I'm, I now, I, I don't take people's money anymore. I'm not at this point. And look, there's probably somebody listening to this who was like, I've been waiting for so long for my thing. And like, I am super sorry about that. But um you know, going forward, I, I'm not taking any money from anybody until I am like ready to start their stuff like that week. You know what I mean? When it's like, all right, this I am going to start now. You can pay me now. Yeah, put them on a waiting list, but don't charge them until you're ready to start. Yeah, I should start maintaining a waiting list. I wish that I was as like efficient and good about maintaining records of stuff pertaining to my real life and finances and business transactions as I am with like maintaining records of like fake stuff from World War II. You know what I mean? Well, this surprises me, Chris, because I thought you believe that fake stuff from World War II is more important than it the is. other stuff. It is. It is more important. I had a guy one time who waited so long um to get his paperwork filled out and in the end he was just like i can't believe that you've made me wait so long he said uh i refuse to believe that you are this like disorganized and it's just like this guy only knew me from like world war ii and it's just like man you have no idea how disorganized i am <laughs> <laughs> you know? well damn you should look at like, my desk i'm glad that my world organized world war ii impression is convincing but like it's a dumpster fire over here. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, you should see me. It's all a dumpster fire here, really. Work, real life, friends, <laughs> relationships. Uh, but honestly. Yeah, let's not, let's not say, yeah, everything's yeah. good. No, let's, I don't want to scare people away from doing World War II reenacting because it, you're into, the rest of your life suddenly becomes <laughs> like a, a shambles. But uh, it doesn't have to be this way, folks. No there's so uh, there's salvation in the end yeah it's good anyway yeah i can always escape to world war ii when it gets really tough over here so um i guess people who have uh been listening this far if you're if you're still with us here you you maybe actually care about doing this thing so i'm just going to throw out some tips on like how kind of to do this and i've written 
so I've got a website. It's called intrenches.com, and there is an article section of that website. And I have tried to put up there a whole bunch of... Uh, so there's some translated material, there's some like how-tos and frequently asked questions, and there's an article there about the clerk impression and how to do it. And I would like direct people to um, basically check out that article because it gives you a, a kind of a rundown about the stuff that you need. Um, you know, I think possibly the most important skill that you could have for this is the ability to write in period handwriting. The uh, handwriting that was used by Germans in World War II was different from modern American handwriting. And in many ways, it was different from modern European handwriting as well. Um, until 1941 in German schools, there was a particular script that was taught called uh, Zutelin. And Zutelin was named after the guy who had devised this script. But it was basically a handwriting version of like that Gothic typography, you know, that everybody kind of associates with Nazi Germany, the um, Fraktur fonts. Um, there was a handwriting version of that, and it's um, kind of a weird, loopy, squiggly, zigzag sort of a handwriting, but this was a handwriting style that people in Germany in World War II would have been familiar with and that they used. And prior to that, the German handwriting uh, you know, like prior to World War One, was a similar script with some variations that was called current. And older people in World War Two would have maybe still written in that style of handwriting. And then um, there was also kind of a, a handwriting that was sort of similar to the modern cursive that everybody knows um, that was called Normalschrift. That was the only kind of handwriting that was taught in schools after 1941. And... Um, like I say, that's a little different too. So the, there are these three different handwriting styles. Of course, with everybody's handwriting being unique, there's endless variation there, but you've got three main styles and to, you've got basically, if you want to do this, you have got to learn at least one of those styles. And I would recommend every reenactor learn how to write that way because there's many instances in reenacting where you will be tasked with writing something down. And if you can do it in uh, period type handwriting, um, I mean, it's cool. It's it's realistic. It's how it would have been. It makes you one of the cool kids. Oh, yeah. It definitely makes you one of the cool kids. You can flex on other people, you know, show off. They can't read it. You can read it. Also, um, just if you're going to be studying original documents, in my opinion, basically the best way to learn how to read these weird scripts, which can be very indecipherable and intimidating looking, is to learn how to write it. If you learn how to write this stuff, it makes it so much easier to read it, to read other people's renditions of it from the time period. And um, that is a super, super handy skill to have in this hobby is the ability to read period handwriting. Um, you know, just even if you're looking at photographs and you know that that photograph depicts something, a specific time and place or a specific unit that you want to lo learn more about. And then here's a scan of the back of that photograph and it has a caption that's handwritten on there. If you can read that, there might be really useful information in there. And if you can't read it, then you have to ask someone else who can. And it's um, and then maybe you find out that it's some boring, stupid thing that you didn't want it to be anyway. <laughs> and it's just been a big waste of time. So Waste of everybody's time waste of everybody's time or like letters you know you can find uh given time there are so many letters to and from german soldiers in world war ii that are available for sale on ebay all the time um many times with the the units of the soldiers is is listed there and 
give it enough time, you can find letters written by soldiers in almost any specific unit, certainly in it, like any division, you know, over time. And, uh, and if you can find some stuff like that and then read it and translate it into whatever language you, you like to speak, um, there can be awesome information in there. Um, but you wouldn't know it unless you know how to, how to read it and, and learn how to write. It really helps you learn how to read it. And beyond that, you need a bunch of stuff. You need to have, uh, you know, a fountain pen at a minimum, maybe a few fountain pens. Having a typewriter is really cr kind of, I think, pretty crucial for this. Um, there's a lot of types of documents that were typewritten uh, at that time that you're going to want to copy. The typewriter has to have a German keyboard so that you can make reproduction documents because it has different keys. It has the umlaut keys, the Estzat, and, you know, maybe a Reichsmark key or s stuff like that. Um, doesn't have to be one of the special SS ones, not even in the SS units. They didn't always have a typewriter that typed the special SS character, although some did. And it's cool to have one of those if you're doing an SS impression especially, but you don't really need it, you know. And obviously everything that comes with that, paper and pencils and rubber stamps. And uh, I go into some detail about that um, in that article if you're really interested. You can, you can check that out. And you can always email me through there or uh, find me on Facebook or through the reenactors corner social media or whatever you can ask me questions about that stuff i love talking about this stuff as you can anyone listening to this probably can tell um you know and i'm certainly happy to to answer anybody's questions about paperwork stuff yeah you're kind of um uh, a dork <laughs> uh yeah uh well look I, we've talked about this before there's a certain type of person that does reenacting that type of person is a dork uh, you know, I really like reenacting and maybe I am like a super dork. I, I, I remember one time I used to work. I don't currently work in an office, but I did for a long time. Somebody asked me one time, they said, hey, do you ever think, don't you think it's funny that you like work in an office and then you, you take time off from your job and then you go like pretend to work in an office? And he was like laughing about it. And I was like, I was like, that's really pathetic. When I think about it. <laughs> you know, like. It makes me sad. I never realized that. That sucks. I'm like, I don't know. I kind of thought it was cool, but now I realize I'm just like working in an office fake. And then on Monday I go to the real office that I hate, you know. Um, but, I mean, I just, I'll, I'll never get sick of doing the paperwork stuff and reenacting because there's so many layers of detail. You know, the... The writing, what what do the entries mean? What can we learn from the entries on the paperwork? What does the form look like? What is the typography that was used here? What is the handwriting that was used? What kind of ink was used? What kind of pen was used to write this? What kind of pencil? You know, and, and all of that whole world of that just the the whole world of like Third Reich office is just so vast and you can never, never know it all. And I could look at the, every single sold book that I see, if it's filled out, you know, if it was carried by somebody, there's something in there that's like, oh, that's interesting. Like, I haven't seen that before. Like, oh, I, you know, this is a way that I've done this before. And this is how this person chose to do it. Or, you know, this is a cool entry. What does this mean? Or whatever it is. There's just like so much, so many layers of detail. And um, it never, ever gets old for me. Really, it doesn't. Like, except for when I'm at home and I don't want to do it and I have to because I told somebody that <laughs> Never I turn your hobby into a job. Yeah, that's probably like... I've done that really with all advice. my hobbies. Ugh. All right, well, 
I think that pretty much covers it. Uh, Lassa, thank you for uh, being patient as I launch into this uh, monologue. I'll come back to you as soon as we start talking about cameras. Exactly. I was thinking about that before we did the episode. I really, you know, I, I obviously I have my like box camera interest, but I really look forward to doing an episode where you get to kind of um, expound on your specialty. And I'm sure that uh, I'll learn a lot and I'm looking forward to it. Okay, Lassa, it's been great talking to you as always. Um, and I don't know what exactly what our next episode is going to be about, but we need to figure that out. And uh, maybe, I don't know, we'll announce it on the, yeah. the social media, right? But right now we can say it's going to be yeah. World War II okay. German reenactment related. Good, that's good. We <laughs> really narrows it down. Maybe we should do the camera one next. Yeah. The photography one. Creeks maybe we should. Yeah, let's do it. Anyone with questions about that, let us know before the next uh, next time we record when you hear this, and uh, and we'll try to work it into the episode. Yeah. Um, but I guess, guys, until then, um, hope everybody uh, stays safe out there, and I will see you in the field. See you in the field. Thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retroman, for editing this episode. And don't forget to use our 7% discount code off of uh, Fedakopf at german-worldwar2.com. And if you buy something there and you go to the checkout and you use the discount code PODCAST2020, that is PODCAST2020, you will get a very nice discount from Fedakopf. Mm-hmm.